Simply put in four words, you shall not steal. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father in heaven, this morning as we consider this eighth commandment, we must indeed consider all that we have received from you. And that there is no greater motivation to obey this commandment than what we find in what you've given us in your son, Jesus. Indeed, for Israel to be led out of Egypt and brought into the promised land and and to to be promised a land to be their own, to, to have seen your miraculous salvation and conquering the gods of Egypt and the evil of Pharaoh and to then come to Mount Sinai and hear these words, you shall not steal, should immediately have recalled in their mind all that they had in you and that there was nothing that they could possibly ever need beyond that. And yet, Lord, this commandment stands for us to hear this morning because it is indeed still an issue. Father, would you speak to our hearts? Would you reveal to us the inclinations and the temptations, the desires in our hearts to get something for free, to get something that we don't deserve, to to be miserly about something, to hold tightly something that you've granted to us for our own purposes. And Lord, would you show us the freedom of being able to let these things go and to trust you with all of our time, all of our talent, all of our treasure, all of life given to you because you rightly deserve it. Ask for your spirit now for wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. These past two years, which have in many ways very easily blended together, 2020 and 2021, have almost become you know, the, the original and then the sequel year that to follow, um, because so much of what we have dealt with in 2020 has only carried over and perhaps in some cases intensified, um, not only in our city, in our country, but in the world at large. 2020 and 2021s were, were and have been years of pandemic, fear, of hatred, violence. And one thing that just seems to keep popping up again and again is looting. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that often on the news, one of the most interesting things for us that catches our attention is to see video footage of somebody running into a store and running right back out with whatever they wanted. Why is that so gripping for us, do you think? Why is it that that people tune in? Of course, they tune into the news every day because they want to know what's going on. They want to be told how to think. I mean, what's going on, right? They want to know what's going on. And when things like looting happens, especially, I wonder if in the human heart there is for all of us even the slightest hint of, boy, I'd love to run into my favorite store. And grab that thing that I've always denied myself, either because of my money or because I'm smart enough not to get it for myself. I wonder if there's something in all of us that looks at something like looting or just theft in general and considers, boy, if I, could, if I knew I could get away with it, that would really be worth it, wouldn't it? Well, we see biblical examples all throughout Scripture of how crime doesn't pay. Two that came to my mind a lot this week were Jacob in the first place, stealing the blessing from his father that was meant for his brother. 
deceiving his father into thinking that he himself was Esau and then receiving the blessing that Israel had fully intended to give to his firstborn. And perhaps even in his mind thinking like, hey, this is okay because God did say the older will serve the younger. So maybe this is an okay method of getting that service that the Lord has already promised, already prophesied over our lives. Secondly, you can look to his wife Rachel in Genesis 31. As they're on their way out of Laban's land and going back to um, where Esau is, Jacob's ready to start his life on his own, away from his uncle and away from his in-laws. And Rachel ends up stealing some of the household gods, some of the false idols of her father's home, taking them with her and lying to her father about it as well. We know both in this idea of stealing blessing and of stealing idolatrous false worship items that God has very clearly through the rest of the stories, if you want to look them up, Genesis 27 and Genesis 31, you can see how those things just simply didn't work out for them the way they were hoping. Crime doesn't pay. And in many of our minds, I imagine, theft is one of the things that first comes to our mind when we think of that phrase. Because What other crime wants to be paid? What other crime wants to be so rewarded besides theft where we say, I want to get that reward of having something that I didn't work for, getting it totally for free? Again, this is one of those sermons where as we look at these Ten Commandments, there's a temptation to think, yeah, I'm looking out, I don't see any thieves out here. I'd be very surprised. Well, hey, look, the sermon is this. Go and don't steal, okay? Let's pray, and we'll see you next week. Very tempting to think that way on a surface level, but of course we have to go deeper. And in going deeper, I want to remind you um, from many weeks ago of the threefold use of the law, particularly the Ten Commandments are really easy to apply to this. But there are three uses of the law that we see in Scripture. And the first most broad use of the law is the civil use of the law. And that is that nations that recognize that God is the transcendent power over their own power will do things like hang the Ten Commandments up in government buildings and in public schools to show that there is something higher than the government officials that we might see with our eyes. There is an unseen authority, and he has spoken to us. And so we're going to plaster up, you shall not steal on the walls of our buildings. And we know that over the past decade, maybe longer, these have been being taken down sequentially, right? Because in the hearts of a secular society, of course, we have to say, no, we don't all generally at least agree on the idea of transcendent power and who that might be. So the first use of the law is a very simple application of something like the Eighth Commandment to all of our society. Because probably no one is going to say, hey, This um, you shall not steal law sounds like you're shoving Christianity down my throat, right? For most people, it's going to be like, well, yeah. Even people who have stolen and who may continue to steal, they might say, yeah, that's still a good law. Still going to do it. But it's something we shouldn't do. And generally, everybody kind of agrees on this very thing. So that's the first use of the law. The second use of the law is what's called the pedagogical use of the law. And that is in reference to Galatians 3.24 where Paul says the law was a guardian or a tutor or a teacher until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the second use of the law comes down to this, that when we look at the law, we see, very simply, a need for a Savior. 
we see that when we look at commandment number eight, even if we have to go far back in our memory to perhaps grabbing a candy bar on the way out of the grocery store, and even if it was accidental, if you've been telling yourself that for years and years, perhaps, that we've broken this eighth commandment. And of course, as we continue, we'll see that there is a deeper breaking of this than simply snagging something on the way out of a store. The third use of the law, and particularly where we especially find ourselves resting on a Sunday morning, is the use of the law as a rule for life for all believers. Ephesians 4.28, Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Now, we might say, hey, Paul, don't you remember writing in Galatians 3.24 that the law was just a tutor? He was, it was just showing us our need for a Savior, and so we're not justified by following the law. We're justified by Christ. We're made right by what he's done on our behalf, not what we've done on our own. And so you might look at Ephesians 4.28, or you might look at the rest of the Bible and say, hey, this doesn't make any sense. We shouldn't be worried about obeying the commandments. Well, obviously, Scripture says different. That now that we are free in Christ, we are not bound by the law in the condemning sense, but the law is now a, a light to us of what life in Christ ought to look at like. And so Paul rightly says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his hands. These things are good. This, just because we're in Christ now doesn't mean that the Ten Commandments have no purpose for us. And that's really sort of the foundation of doing a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. It's not simply to look back and say, hey, see what all these guys had to deal with back in the Old Testament days? That must have been rough. Whew, glad that we're forgiven. Everything's under the blood and we don't have to worry about following the law. No, in truth, as you see in the Sermon on the Mount and in many other places, like Ephesians 4.28, the law is actually heightened for us now because the Holy Spirit is living inside of God's people. And so we have to consider these things, not only as a general civil principle for our society and not only as a past memory of how it showed us that we needed Christ, but now as a rule for our life in Christ. And I'll quote again, probably for the seventh or eighth time from Alec Mateer, that this law is given in order to push back the strong current of evil in our own hearts. That is in the hearts of believers, even still. Do you have any memory, any recent memory, do you have any notion, even in your heart right now, of your own evil inclinations, of a strong current that might be pushing you to say, Forget about all this Christian stuff and go do what you want to do. Take your life back. It wasn't worth it. That might sound dramatic. Maybe it's in a smaller sense. Maybe there are lighter things that, that the, the world or your flesh or even the enemy, Satan himself, is trying to say, like, hey, it's not so bad if you just skip out on this thing. Or, you know, you don't really need to be reading your Bible regularly. Or, you know, you don't have to worry about the poor. Worry about yourself. These kinds of things are, in effect, stealing away what Christ has earned at the cross, which is your life. So, have our typical four-point layout here. We first need to look at what is the call of this passage. And before I tell you what the call is beyond the simple and honest and true call to not steal, I want to remind you of one of my favorite movies, It's a Wonderful Life. Good one, right? Christmas classic. 
I know it's August 1st, but I was thinking about this movie all week long, so you're going to have to deal with it. And I'm going to give you a warning. It's going to come up three times. This is only the first one, so be patient with me. But in It's a Wonderful Life, if you've seen it, you know very well how the story goes, and you know George Bailey's big struggle. Every step along the way of his life, he's, he's moving in a direction where he says, hey, I'm going to go to college, and I'm going to learn to be an architect, and I'm going to set out and do this whole thing. And the work of the building and loan that his father established is pulling him back home because he has to stay and take care of it. In this first case, because his brother's going to go off to college. And so he says, all right. One opportunity stolen away from me. He lets that go. And then sequentially, time and time again, with his father's passing and with the evil of Mr. Potter looming over him, he again and again sacrifices his own dreams in order to do what is best for his family, for his neighborhood, and ultimately for the world, because this is a great story, even though it's fictitious. But George Bailey's story kind of amounts in his own mind to a repetition of losing out on greatness and having that stolen away from him for the sake of everyday necessities that he thinks lesser people should be taken care of. Though he's very selfless in this movie, right? He, he gives away all of his money after his wedding. I mean, there's, there's these points where you're like, boy, George Bailey, if anybody could get to heaven by good works, it must be you. But then we see at the end that all along this way, he has felt as though life has been stolen from him and swept out from underneath his feet. And like George Bailey's story, this command bears weight on our everyday life. It bears weight on the little decisions that we make, those high points of what am I going to do with my life and where am I going to move and what's my job going to be, and et cetera, et cetera. But also in those everyday simple situations where we're called to not take something away and hold tightly to ourselves that God has given us, but to let those things go. And so our call today is to honor God through honest work and to give sacrificially to those around us. That is, if we could pick two things to grab onto that this command is calling us to. Because, yeah, you could say, hey, look, verse 15, it just says you shall not steal. Isn't that enough? Well, when you look at the rest of Scripture, you have to say, hey, it's not just enough to make sure that you don't cause someone harm. But what God has actually created his people into are things like salt and light. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Right? We are supposed to be seasoning the world around us, making life taste a little bit better because we know the one who is the author of life and the giver of our life in Christ. So it's not enough for us to just take this in the negative. We have to bring it also into the positive. So let's look at four ways that this law puts a weight on our lives that maybe we're not willing or able on our own to deal with. The first one is obvious. I've already said it, and it's already in here. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Don't take things that don't belong to you, right? I don't know how many times, even when I was teaching middle school, that this simple fact came in and just said, and I'd sit down, I'd have to take the kid out to the hallway, and I'm like, why are we having this conversation? That's not yours. Don't take it. Duh. It's simple. It's easy. Why are we having this conversation over and over and over again with middle schoolers? It felt like not all the time, but, you know, three or four times was enough. Because this just seems so basic, doesn't it? Don't take what isn't yours. But obviously it's in here intentionally. It's in these particular words on purpose because we need to hear it. So that's the first thing that the law requires of us. The second thing is that we not deal deceitfully with one another. 
or working out in, in dishonesty. So this, I'm going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 25 for this. If you want to follow along in Deuteronomy 25, and then we'll go back to 15 in a, a minute. But in verses 13 through 15 of Deuteronomy 25, where Moses is giving a second sermon to the next generation. Deuteronomy 5 is just a repetition of the Ten Commandments, but this is an elaboration and a history. Deuteronomy is a great book. But Moses says to the people, You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. Okay, that's a really weird commandment for us, isn't it? I I remember, boy, dozens of times reading this and going, I don't know, how do you make a devotional moment out of this? Right? Don't carry in your bag two kinds of weights. I'm not a weightlifter. Uh, I don't, if, if I did go to the gym, I can't imagine that I'd be taking my own weights there or traveling with these very often. That's clearly not what he's talking about. He's talking about buying and selling and trading and, and using scales to determine, hey, you know, you want to sell me two pounds of beans and I'm going to give you however much money for it, but I'm going to mess with the weights a little bit so that your two pounds of beans only comes up as a pound and a half and I only have to give you three quarters of it's too much math this morning for me. You get it, right? He's talking about buying and selling here. Verse 14, you shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. Verse 15, a full and a fair weight you shall have, a full and a fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. So don't deal deceitfully, because that is in itself theft, right? Even though you say, no, he gave it to me. He knew what he was doing. If, if deceit is involved, if there's a lie involved in this, then it is theft. Thirdly, as we see in the New Testament, as we already saw in Ephesians, we looked at Colossians 3, verse 23. It's a great passage. The third function of this law, particularly not to steal, involves us doing honest work. And so, Colossians 3, 23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. Heartily, a really, really great word. From the Greek, it simply is referring to from the soul, from the heart, from your inward being, as though it's meaningful. And you may be in a work situation where you say, I have no idea how this can be meaningful. If I had another job where I was doing something more significant, however we define that, we might think that suddenly it's imbued with more meaning Ultimately, that's all just because of what other people see, how people see us, how we communicate. Oh, I work at such and such a place. I do such and such a thing. And we might think, we might be tempted, and we are often tempted to think that our work is not meaningful, even if it is honest work, even if I'm not breaking any laws, even if I'm not stealing. But this word heartily reminds us, again, and what comes after the word heartily in Colossians 3.23, is working heartily as for the Lord, working from your heart as for the Lord and not for men. So ultimately, when you go to work tomorrow, you're not going to work for your boss, though you are, but more deeply, you're going to work for the Lord. And he will never look at your job and say, yeah, I kind of just wish you were doing something more and more meaningful with your life. He wants you to do honest work. And because you're doing it for him, that gives it meaning. And then the fourth thing of this eighth commandment is to give with generosity. Now again, you might look at it and say, hold on, it just says do not steal. I'm just going to make sure not to take things from people. But ultimately, as we'll see, there is more to it than our simply not taking things, but going beyond that. Because again, if we look at these commandments and we say that they reflect something of the character of God, 
Is it really that impressive to our modern minds to think God is so great and God is so holy that he doesn't steal things? I mean, at large, we might kind of say like, well, generally, I don't steal things either, so maybe that's not that big of a deal. Well, the reason God doesn't steal is because he is exactly the opposite of that. And what is the opposite of stealing? You can answer. Giving, right? So we have to move on to that as well. Deuteronomy 15, um, verses 7 through 11, hear this. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Whoa. Verse 8, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. You give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the, need, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Isn't it fascinating that this promised land, this great perfect place that Israel had in mind to live in, that they were going to receive from the Lord, and the Lord says, you'll never not have poor people in the land. Well, doesn't that kind of ruin the whole idea of the promised land? They might think, but no, in fact, God allows poverty in order that his generosity might overcome it. And until Christ returns, as he himself also said, you will always have the poor with you. So we need to be mindful of our opportunities to give generously. And this, perhaps, is where our sinful hearts speak up the loudest. Because we need to realize that the selfishness and greed in our hearts can not only close our hands from giving, but it can also open us up to theft and stinginess. So again, it's a wonderful life illustration. Brace yourselves. This might be bad. Mr. Potter, the bad guy, when he's first introduced in the beginning of the movie, this is actually as George is talking to his dad at the kitchen table, and George's dad defines Mr. Potter so perfectly, I think. He says he hates anybody who has anything that he can't have. And when you hear that line and when you watch the rest of the movie and you see everything Mr. Potter does, you see that so clearly as the prime objective of his heart. His greediness had extended so deep into his own heart and, and out into his life that he had taken things that shouldn't be his and he had had all the money in the town pretty much and the, the false reality that happens in the second part of the movie especially. But this is what our lack of love for our neighbors produces. Hatred. The thing that we're called not to do. We're called to love our neighbors, right? And in the second part of the Ten Commandments here, the first four or the first five having to do with our love for God, the second half of the commandments are calling us to love our neighbors. And it may be very easy for us to look at this commandment, you shall not steal, and think, okay, on the surface I got this. I will earn everything that I have. You may still be in danger of breaking this commandment, and I would tell you you probably are to some extent. 
Because when we focus so much on earning rightly whatever we have, when we let that become our primary objective in this world, though it is a good thing and we should do honest work and we should work for a living and we should earn things honestly, if we let that become greater in our minds than the greatest commandment, we will in effect be stealing from people. We will leave our hearts open to greed and selfishness and may even find ourselves committing this very act of theft. The temptation to get something for nothing is at the heart of this commandment. And even those of us who may have a, like a very clear sense of earning what I have and, and making sure that everything I do is honest, there's still this temptation and it's going to manifest itself in some way. There's going to be something, maybe even the week ahead of you, that will, that will kind of remind this temptation in your heart that there is an opportunity to get something for nothing and to take the easy way in some way, shape, or form. For Israel, it was a warning also against slavery. To say that when you are... Okay, so the, slavery is a big issue in the Bible, right? And there's, there's a lot that we could talk about that as far as, you know, Paul talking to Philemon and those kind of things. But for a nutshell right now, there was a, a righteous and okay way of becoming a slave. If you were in debt and you were going to sell yourself into work, um, there was a right way for doing that. And you can see that in the Old Testament. You see it shown in the New Testament as well. But the warning in this against wrongful slavery had to do with not going in and taking people, basically stealing them, right? Taking them out of their own country, bringing them into yours and making them your slaves. See, our, our American history has a, a blemish in this regard, of course. But this was one of the things that would have come to the minds of the original hearers. Of course, we already mentioned the inaccurate measurements. There's also a matter of interest, and how in the Old Testament here we can see in Deuteronomy later on, not that they're commanded not to take interest when they loan money. And of course, we today ought not take excessive interest. And there are companies and there are systems in the world that are built off of and thriving because of excessive and unnecessary interest. On a lighter note, in the early 2000s, computers started coming with these great little devices in there called CD burners. And I can remember in 7th and 8th grade having a friend who had a CD burner and he could tell me like, hey, I just got this great new CD and I'm going to give it to you too. What? How did you do that? Are you a witch? How did this happen? It was just like magical technology. But it was still under the category of giving, getting something for nothing. We might ask in these kind of settings, who does it really hurt? The big rock star musicians of the day weren't directly hurt by me having a free copy of their CDs. And maybe you could even just compare it back to before that when people would listen to the radio and put their tape recorders on, right? It's the same thing. If we can't see the immediate effect of it, like in so many other matters of sin, we might be tempted to tell ourselves there's really nothing wrong with it. That leads me to the last, one of the last things here, just for the sake of time, regarding gambling. It's a terrible thing. Gambling is awful. And again, it's one of those institutions of our country that has made 
billions and billions of dollars off of people's greed, off of their motivation to try to get something for free that they haven't really worked for. And, and often gambling and going to a place like Las Vegas is masked, oh, mask, sorry, it masks over greed and foolishness with an idea of fun. Because I've talked to people who've gone to Vegas and they said, hey, I know I'm not going to go come back with a million dollars. I know I might even come back with less money. I might even come back with no money at all. But I'll have fun. Does fun justify foolishness? Does fun justify greed? Does it not go against everything in the Bible that commands a, a good use of our money, a good use of our time, a good use of our talents and our treasure? As an attempt, at least, to bypass honest work? Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in the first part of the 20th century, says that a society, a country, or a world which begins to despise labor and effort is proclaiming that it is godless. The whole notion of obtaining ma the maximum and doing the minimum is utterly irreligious and profoundly unchristian. I would say that even to the Christian church, this temptation, because we're swimming in this ocean that is indeed despising labor and effort, you can see this, right? Because how many places do you drive by and see now hiring signs? And then you still run into people who say, boy, I just can't find a job. Some people legitimately can't find a job, and I get that. But there's also a large movement in our society today that is despising labor and effort. And this is, as Lloyd-Jones says, godless. It is utterly irreligious and profoundly unchristian to try to find, try to obtain the maximum while only doing the minimum. Kevin DeYoung says that greed that stems, that is the, the root of this matter of theft, greed is stealing with the eyes of our hearts. And that may be, again, a matter of trying to take something that is not ours, but it may also just be a matter of being unwilling to give what we ought to give. And so every little inclination to groan or murmur or roll our eyes at an opportunity to do something as simple as the dishes or changing a diaper, when we're asked to do everyday basic kind of things and we say, oh, can't you just do that? Or can't somebody else do it? Can't it hold off till tomorrow? There's this sense of us taking something that really doesn't belong to us and holding tightly to it. If it's that prevalent to us in everyday matters, it has to have an even deeper reality, and that is that this matter of giving and this matter of working honestly and our, our temptation to work against that and to try to get things for free, our temptation to try to hold on to what we've earned and, and to claim something as ours that is truly God's leaves us at that very moment where we, we ought to realize that none of us can actually say that anything that we have is rightly or truly ours at all. Even if we have put the work into it. Even if the paycheck at the end of the week says my name in the bottom right corner. Everything that we have is given to us by God. Who commands us to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and all our strength. That is everything that you are. An all-encompassing love and allegiance to him rather than to ourselves. So Christ comes to us at this place, at this matter of our stinginess, of our taking of those three categories, our time, that is our days, our weeks, and our months, and our years, our talents, the things that we're good at, our skills, 
and our treasure, our, our money, our cars, our homes, whatever physical things that we might have. Christ comes to a world where people are taking these things and saying, these are mine. They have the stamp of my approval, the stamp of my accomplishment on them. And he is coming as the one who truly owns all things and chooses in the mystery of his will to lay it all down. Not to take anything that's not his because there is literally nothing that does not belong to him. But he does the positive opposite of this command and gives everything of himself, becomes the ultimate giver, the gift at the cross for thieves and for misers, freeing them to work heartily and to give generously. But in order to identify with the Savior, we need to identify with a thief. And you remember this as Jesus was on the cross, as he was crucified with two thieves on his left and his right. And one of them mocking Jesus and saying, man, if you really are the Messiah, what's wrong with you? Like, do something about this. Save yourself. Save us. Let's get out of here. And the other thief looks at him and goes, you're an idiot. We deserve to be up here, but he's done nothing. It's as if in that moment, that thief could look at Jesus and just knew this was not a guy who has taken anything that doesn't belong to him. This is a guy who has given everything of himself to others. He says, He doesn't deserve to be up here. We deserve this. And he looks at Jesus, and he simply says, what? Remember me when you enter your kingdom. Making no requests to remember his deeds or his misdeeds. Doesn't make any promises to act any differently. And truly, for us to come to Christ, we cannot make any promises to change. He's not asking us to make any promises to change. He's asking us to come to him to be changed, to be made new, to be born again, so that we can no longer work for our greed or our selfishness. But if I am being made more like Christ, then I suddenly can truly pursue heartily heartily done work and generous giving. Because Christ conquered death, because he purchased me at the cross because he's risen now, nothing of my time, nothing of my talent, and nothing of my treasure is truly mine anyway. And now I know it. Since Christ has given his work and his life for me, I can be free from selfishness and greed. I can be free from stinginess. I can be free to give freely, even if somebody might come up to me like, you know that guy that you just gave 80 bucks to, he's just going to squander it on this or that. We worry about that all the time, don't we? And... In one sense, rightly, we should be careful about how we give. We should give with wisdom and generosity. But so often that that attempt to say, you know, I really don't think I should help this person or this organization because I I just don't trust it. So often that's not followed up by a serious work of research or investigation to find out whether that's a worthy cause. It's usually used as an excuse for us not to give. Can you imagine Christ at the cross saying, you know, Father, I know I'm dying for the sins of my people here. I just want you to count Nick out, though, because I have second thoughts on this. I just want to forget about him. Don't don't count this to his account. Can you imagine if that were your name, if you were the one that he said, no, I got second guess. I got a second guess on that because I know they're going to let me down. And sure enough, we do day by day, do we not? And yet this is the wonder and the amazing grace of his freeing, life-giving love that he knew that we would continue in our theft and in our greed and in our miserly attitudes. And he died all the same for us to make us new.
and to give us this now struggle that we walk in as his people. To repent daily of any inclination to serve ourselves, to take something that we think is ours and hold tight to it. So R. Kent Hughes is a commentary writer and a preacher, and he says, Every time I give, I declare that money does not have control over me. Perpetual, that is continuing, generosity is a continuing de-deification of money. That is that as I continue to act in generosity, everything that I give away, whether it be money in this case, as he says, or it be my time, or it be my talent, every time I give something of what God has entrusted to me, I am de-deifying that thing. I'm making it less of a God in my mind. I'm making money no longer my master. I'm making my time no longer my master. I'm making my own skills and talents and abilities no longer my master, but to serve me as I serve Christ. Because if money is my master, then I do whatever it asks me to get it, even if I need to break the Eighth Commandment. But Christ has bought us with a price, as we noticed last week from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. And so if we ourselves don't even belong to ourselves, how can we say that anything, that my phone, that my Bible, my notebook, my anything, could I really truly in my mind rightly say anything really belongs to me in the first place? This is not a call to socialism. We're not going to then say, all right, everybody bring your debit cards and your wallets. We're going to put them all in a pot here. We're going to distribute equally. That's not what we're doing because that's not God's design. God's design is to individually endow you with time, talent, and treasure so that you can be a good steward of it by giving it out to people around you. So that you can, in fact, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Because every instance of giving is a reflection and a response to the gift of Christ in your own life. And we can, as Ephesians 4.28 said at the end, work so that we may have something to give to, to another. He says, even the thief, even the person who was living off of taking things from other people, should be so radically changed by the gospel that everything turns upside down and the thief is no longer one who steals, but one who gives. And perhaps in conclusion, we can look at one of the best examples of that from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 19, if you want to turn there with me. Perhaps you know who we're going to here. A wee little man who in fact became a giant spiritually because of his encounter with Christ. So go to Luke 19, follow along as I look at verses 1 through 10. Because since we have, since everything that we have has been received by Christ and not truly earned, even if we put in the time, even if we put in all the effort and our investments, everything that we've invested, all the effort that we've been given, has been given to us by God. So we must work in joyful worship and give with selfless generosity, like Zacchaeus. Luke 19, verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. I always love in the Jesus Storybook Bible, the other thing they add about Zacchaeus for kids. He had no friends, none. No friends, none. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. 
You can imagine the humor of the story for the, the original audience to be thinking about this chief tax collector who thinks he can go see Jesus. What's wrong with him? He's a tax collector. He's not just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. He's like the tax collector of tax collectors. We hate tax collectors, and we especially hate you, you chief of tax collectors. And I'm glad you're small in stature and couldn't see Jesus. So it's hilarious to me that you have to climb a tree just so you can see him, and you can understand how far you are. From God. That might be a voice in the crowd looking at Zacchaeus climbing the sycamore tree. But this voice in verse 5 from Jesus says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up at him and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. You know, the whole purpose of a tax collector and and getting rich was the Roman government tells me to take 15 bucks a week from this family, but I'm going to take 35 and pocket the rest. He says, if I've defrauded anyone, not only am I going to go and make things right, such that the person who opens the door can say, wow, Zacchaeus, this is really weird that you're doing this, but I guess I got my money back, so whatever. Rather, the radical change that Christ had in Zacchaeus' life resulted in him not only making things right, but making things better. That he had become salt and light in the world where he used to be the opposite of that. He used to be a thief. He used to be a taker of things. Now he became a giver. If I've defrauded anyone, I'm not just going to pay them back. I'm going to give them back fourfold. Jesus' response shows us that Zacchaeus is not buying his salvation. He's not saying this in the first place to say, so Jesus, can you come to my house? Can you, can you honor me with your presence? Can I be near you? No. Jesus is already in his house. And the response of Jesus' closeness to Zacchaeus is giving away everything he has, realizing who is the true owner of all things. And so Jesus says in verse 9 to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Zacchaeus' story is amazing, isn't it? What a change chart. Can you think of the, the thieviest thief that you know, that you could possibly imagine? The worst kind of criminal, only ever taking in, in mass quantities, doing the worst kind of things you could imagine. And an encounter with Christ so radically transforms him, not to just make things right, but to make things better. To become a tool in the hands of his God to refresh a world in darkness with his light. So I want to give you a challenge for this week. And that is for you to consider your time, consider your talents, consider your treasure. Maybe consider just one of those things. Consider what it is that God might be calling you to give from that today or tomorrow or this week. Perhaps it's a matter of being open to that so that you might hear him later on in the week say, hey, this is that time to give that money or to give that time or to do that service for that person. But I want you also to consider that if you're not open and willing to do that, are you in danger of breaking the Eighth Commandment? Because I hope it's clear, there's nothing that you own that's really yours. It all belongs to the Lord. And for us to say, 
I'm not open to sharing my time, talent, and treasure would be an infringement on this commandment. And then secondly, how about your work? Is there one thing you could do in going into this new work week to work heartily as to the Lord and not just for your boss? Or even if you yourself are your boss. Working for him to use your time, talent, treasure in that workplace to enhance it and to make it better, to show something of the character of Christ in the world around you. So I want to share this quote from Alistair Begg regarding our testimony. He says, Part of our calling as Christians is to help our secular friends and neighbors to see that these moral norms are not arbitrary or irrational. That is to say that when they look at the Ten Commandments, like we said at the beginning, you say, hey, you shall not steal. I can agree with that. It doesn't sound psycho-religious. It doesn't sound unreasonable. You shall not steal. But Alistair is saying that we ought not just let our neighbors and our friends think that these moral norms are arbitrary or irrational, whatever they might be, that, that, they, that they shouldn't just think like, oh, he's just saying don't steal just because it's, it's the right thing to do. But rather... These commandments, these laws, this eighth commandment particularly, is objective and true, and they reflect the character of the author, who is a just and holy God. So by your generosity, by your honest work, you are not simply adhering to something that should be hung up in state capitals or in government buildings, but you are actually reflecting the character of God and showing your freedom to do so. So what testimony does your life communicate in this area? Does it communicate dependence on the one who is the true owner of all that you have and all that you are? Or does it reflect defiance by your taking of your time, talent, and treasure and only using it for your good and for your purposes and for your mindset? We need to show that these laws are not best understood in just a horizontal level. Our major issue with the sin of stealing is not that we harm other people, but that we disobey God. It's wrong to bring harm. It's wrong to do wrong to other people. But at the heart of that is a rebellious attitude against God. And as God's people, we are not those who simply say, hey, this, there are a handful of things that I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I don't need to worry about that. Because we're smarter than that. Because wouldn't the enemy love for us to say at the end of the sermon, well, that one wasn't for me. I hope somebody got out, something out of it. Wouldn't the enemy love to just creep in and start sowing greed and selfishness and stinginess in our lives without us even knowing it? Because I don't know about you, but that's usually the way he works in my life. And I need to rely on the work of my Father in heaven to undo the work of the enemy, to undo the work of my flesh and my own selfishness, to speak louder than the voices in the society around me so that he might speak through me his love and his grace in Christ. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, this morning, as we consider what is ours is yours, and as we consider our own desires, our own inherent selfishness, our own greed, our own miserly attitude, our desire to hold on to some things of our lives at the very least with a closed fist, Lord, would you make it such that in our hearts and in our minds, there's nothing that you would ask of us that we wouldn't give you because you've given us your son. Make it so that we would not cling so closely and so tightly 
to the things that you desire to take away from us for our good? May we not cling so tightly to them that we miss out on your greater plan. Even those things that would hurt us. Even the harm and the loss that many of us have already felt perhaps at different stages in life. You've turned those things around for good. And you've made us not into thieves, not into misers. But you've made us into givers. You've made us salt and light in this world. Help us to be effective in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.